one of the main reasons why we talk about being in this room right now with people like Duke Ellington, Cap Calloway, Cal Basie, Louis Armstrong, because they would perform here in Philadelphia at the Academy of Music, at the Schubert Theater, at many of these other great theaters of the time in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, but they wouldn't be able to eat in the restaurants in Center City. They wouldn't be able to stay at any of the hotels. So Marian Anderson opened her doors here at her home for them, and they were able to come here and eat and dine and play uh, beautiful uh, music and uh, jazz, which Marian Anderson loved. She loved jazz such incredible talent that we are holding up and lauding didn't even have that common basic right and decent right this is the visible voices podcast i'm your host dr risa lewis before we get started here's a word about revision path my name is maurice cherry and i'm the host of revision path an award-winning weekly interview podcast that showcases the world's best black designers, developers, and digital creatives. If you're looking to get inspired, then tune in each week for in-depth conversations that explore the creative journey, including the processes, thoughts, and motivations behind these awesome creators shaping the future of art, design, and technology. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. And I'm so glad to bring you my conversation with Jillian Patricia Pertle, where we discuss the life of Marian Anderson. Marian Anderson was a world-renowned singer. She was a contralto. And you're going to hear about her iconic life and two major events that made history, one in 1939 and the other in 1955. But first, let me tell you a bit about Jillian. She's a professional American stage and opera artist. She received her BFA in musical theater and operatic performance from the University of the Arts here in Philadelphia. She also has a degree in history and is a licensed historian with the state of Pennsylvania. Why is this relevant? Well, in 2018, Lady Blanche Burton Lyles, the founder of the National Marian Anderson Museum and Historical Society died. And at that time, Jillian became the museum and organization's chief executive officer. To this day, the museum is in Philadelphia. It's run and maintained by the Marian Anderson Historical Society. This conversation was recorded in the home where Marian Anderson lived. Let's get to the conversation. Two periods in time, two years that I'll name that maybe listeners are aware of. 1939, Marian Anderson performs at the Lincoln Memorial. And this is after being denied the ability to perform at Constitution Hall. Marian Anderson was ending her third European tour experience. The first two were educational and performance European tour experiences. The third one was mostly performance-based. She had become well-established by then. At the end of 1938, she was the highest-paid African-American artist that was in the United States and really overseas as well. And when she came back at the end of 1938, her manager, Sal Hurok, the great impresario of the time, and his management team said, we want to reintroduce you to the United States. The People's Princess is what he called it. And he wanted her to have a concert where the East would meet the West. And through their schedule that they had put together for her for touring and concerting, they had a partnership with Howard University. 
historically black college that they would have a co-sponsored concert event for 1939. And they chose a venue that would be in the middle of the country, Constitution Hall. They thought it was a glorious performance space. The owners of the Constitution Hall at the time, once the contract was out on paper, were not aware that Marian Anderson was a woman of color, that she was African-American. They thought she was a white woman. And when it was brought to their attention that she was a black woman, they said they would never have any Negro performing on their stage. And they rejected her contract. They informed Mr. Sal Hurok's office. And then in turn, started the snowball of negativity and horrible effects of um, that particular racist uh, moment. And through that came a springboard of activism very quickly. Uh, Once the Howard University office was informed of this, they immediately contacted Mr. Um, Walter White, who was the president of the NAACP at the time nationally. He was already familiar with Marian Anderson because he had seen her in concert in New York almost a decade before. He had been following her career, the big performance that she gave in Chicago during the riots. When he heard about this, he immediately came to her defense. They started having boycotts and protests. Um, This was in the newspapers almost daily. All of this attention that Marian Anderson was getting that she didn't even realize because the one of the last people to be told about this was Marian Anderson. After that, with Walter White starting these boycotts and getting the press involved and doing all of this, he reached out to his other friend, happened to be First Lady of the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt. And when he called her office and he informed her of what was going on, She was shocked and she was totally disgusted because she was an honorary member of the DAR. And she said she would never be comfortable being part of an organization that would discriminate against anyone based upon their color, their skin, their class, their creed, their beliefs. She wrote a formal letter and she seceded from the Daughters of American Revolution The DAR didn't want to accept the first lady's resignation, but it didn't matter at that point. She had already seceded from it. And she began to write a formal article in her newspaper. Our first lady of the United States actually had a newspaper, which would be considered the blog or podcast of its time. And she wanted everyone to know where she stood on the subject and issue. And after that was published, she reached out to Mr. Harold Ickes, the conservator of the United States Department of the Interior. And she informed him that she wanted to have a meeting with him and Mr. Walter White. And after that meeting, they devised a plan that would try to outshine the negative and racist tone of the moment. And that is how April 9th, 1939, Easter Sunday came about. A crowd of 75,000 people listen to Marianne Anderson sing on the mall in Washington, D.C. And listeners, if you're wondering about this major historic event, you can look it up and, and see the performance on YouTube. 
it is sensational. And though Marian Anderson was terrified and extremely nervous about it because it was the American public stretched as far as the eyes could see the biggest concert that had ever taken place in our nation. And you had a mix of families standing side by side, but you had artists and celebrities, Tallulah Bankhead sitting next to, you know, senators and all types of people. It, it, it was a moment that has yet to be duplicated. I think the closest we can say it has come is when President Obama was elected president and he gave that speech, monumental speech that night and you had the sea of people um, or maybe it was his inauguration day and you had a sea of people of all class, color, creeds, but it, it just really has not been duplicated. We're recording, as we've shared with the listeners at the Marian Anderson home, and I'm wondering if you can just briefly talk about what is happening right now in the House and your role in maintaining the legacy of Marian Anderson. During the height of the pandemic, the Marian Anderson Museum suffered a catastrophe. Everyone knows about the effects of what the pandemic did to shutter uh, businesses and um, the landscape across the United States, especially in Philadelphia. But at the Marian Anderson Museum, we had um, a pipe burst from the main street line into this lower level, which we are sitting now. And then we had Hurricane Irma that devastated the East Coast. So we had three and a half feet of water covering on each floor, which totally uh, ruined not only the structures exterior and interior, but all of the artifacts therein. We keep most of Marian Anderson's things that we have in our collection in a cold storage facility offsite for protection. But each exhibit that we have, we have a great deal of things that we put on display for the general public. During that particular exhibit, we had uh, Marian, the music, the women, and the movement to give a nod to the 100 year anniversary of the women's right to vote. So there was a significant amount in the collection that was here and that was damaged by those horrible floodwaters. And we've been in the process of repair, restoration, and fundraising to get all of this done to get this National Historic Landmark open back to the public as soon as possible. I am the CEO of the National Marian Anderson Museum and Historical Society. I have been with this organization since I was 13 years old as a young Marian Anderson scholar artist. I'm still a Marian Anderson scholar artist that doesn't take the title away, but bestowed upon me by our late beloved founder, Lady Blanche Burton Lyles, who was Marian Anderson's protege. She herself was a world famous historical figure, classical pianist, professor. She bestowed this upon me um, prior to her death. Marian Anderson, her voice and her talent, nature plus nurture, uh, and it started with what was within her, was her first appreciated in the church and by her father, and very much the community surrounded her to get her lessons, to get her in front of people that could help her develop her skill and her voice. So childhood into adolescence, high school, she had 
many instances of racism, many instances of people not supporting her, but each time it seemed that there were angels, you mentioned angels, that sort of saw, heard, were brought to tears by her voice and helped move her along. Absolutely. And it would seem that throughout Marian Anderson's story, whenever there was a roadblock or a path where someone put up a barrier for Marian Anderson, someone else would come along and would breeze a window open or unlatch a door. And that was something, honestly, that Marian Anderson's mother foresaw in her. And she continued to pour into her as a speech of hope and encouragement, letting Marian Anderson know even when these types of doors get closed, there will be another way. And that is how Marian Anderson was able to get the funding to start getting her voice lessons from Mr. Giuseppe Boghetti when she was a graduating senior in high school. It is the way in which she was able to keep funds going, having her first United States tour experience with Mr. William Billy King, her first accompanist and arranger. It certainly was when she was sent to Europe the fall of 1928, um, after being told that she would never be able to attend the Philadelphia Academy of Music and Art because they would never accept any blacks into their college program. This story of artists, in this case musicians, vocalists, being treated better, more respectfully, more welcomely, more openly, with more equity abroad, specifically in Europe, is a very common story. It is, and it is one where you get in where you fit in for freedom's sake. And it was an eye-opening experience for Marian Anderson when she arrived in Europe because she began to see that these contemporaries of her time, Josephine Baker, who would eventually become a lifelong friend, Paul Robeson, who would become a lifelong and dear friend for her, and so many others were over in Europe seeking the same thing that she was. Marian Anderson would talk about how she would come back to the United States and still not be able to ride in the front of the train car here in Philadelphia or going across the country on the standardized rail train that she would be able to perform in Atlantic City but couldn't get a hotel room at all. She had to stay with friends of friends in their homes and things of that nature. She was given a key to the city by the mayor of Atlantic City, but couldn't stay there. And it just wasn't Atlantic City. It was basically everywhere. You know, one of the main reasons why we talk about being in this room right now with people like Duke Ellington, Cap Calloway, Cal Basie, Louis Armstrong, because they would perform here in Philadelphia at the Academy of Music, at the Schubert Theater, at many of these other great theaters of the time in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, but they wouldn't be able to eat in the restaurants in Center City. They wouldn't be able to stay at any of the hotels. So Marian Anderson opened her doors here at her home for them, and they were able to come here and eat and dine and play uh, beautiful uh, music and uh, jazz, which Marian Anderson loved. She loved jazz. Such 
incredible talent that we are holding up and lauding didn't even have that common basic right and decent right. The next important year I'd like to highlight is 1955. 1955 was the first time that an African-American starred at the Metropolitan Opera in a major season performance, and that was Marian Anderson, doing so in Giuseppe Verdi's Una Mera in Mascara, the masked ball. And Marian Anderson was cast in the role of Eurisha, the oracle. And it was done. A lot of people said far later than it should have been. First of all, it should have always been that artists of color had that particular opportunity. Marian Anderson certainly should have had that opportunity. However, Marian Anderson felt that when the opportunity came, she was grateful for it. And she focused on the opportunity. And I think that that is so incredibly important and fantastic because she knew the magnanimous moment that she was walking into. She understood the weight and the gravity of the situation of being that first African-American voice in a starring role to perform and do such. Even then, it was not without forms of racism, hatred, ridiculous controversy, people speaking against it. They had threats that were cast upon them for having a black perform on the Metropolitan Opera stage. And Marian Anderson survived that and sang so beautifully and had seven curtain calls, Mm -hmm. you know? And then it wasn't enough. You know, she performed and toured with the company for the mass ball all across the United States. They went overseas a bit. And then she said one of the best feelings in the world was when the company arrived in Philadelphia and the sign went up over the marquee of the Academy of Music. And Unamata in Basiara performed at the Academy of Music and she felt she was home with it. She had performed so many concerts over her lifetime at the Academy and with the Philadelphia Orchestra, Maestro Ormandy. But that was such a capital moment for her, bringing the masked ball to the Academy of Music. Marian Anderson received over 20 honorary doctorates. Uh, she performed at the Met, as we know, at the Lincoln Memorial. She appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, What's My Line?, In my listening and research in anticipation of our conversation, she was in Scandinavia performing for John Sibelius. And he said, after she sang, my roof is too low for you. With a tear in his eye. And this was a man who was extremely stoic, says his wife. His wife was there in the room and she knew her husband and she remarked, my man who is stoic, has no emotion for anyone, had tears coming down his eyes when Marian Anderson sang in his home. And from that point on, 
Mr. Sibelius came of something of a mentor for Marian Anderson, and she loved singing his works and his pieces. And I think that that's, that's fantastic. She took that with her when she became the first African-American to have her own radio program in the United States, the first to have her own radio show, CBS. What might be some things about her daily life or what she did with her routine that people would be surprised by or tickled by or interested to know? There was nothing really that surprising about Marian Anderson. She lived a normal life. She loved to have a normal routine. She loved to uh, drink tea, have tea. She loved to rehearse and do her rehearsing in scales, particularly in the second level back room, because she says it would get the most quiet experience as to not disturb the other people in her home or her neighbors, but she just loved being Marian Anderson. And when she got married, she loved being Mrs. Fisher. She just loved doing the normal things like, um, you know, she wasn't the greatest cook, she'll admit, or baker, but she liked to cook and bake. She loved to take care of her pets and her, you know, dogs and cats and animals. And then when she had other um, animals at her farm in Danbury, Connecticut. And then she loved sewing and fabrics and upholstery. Can you imagine? But we do have pictures of her upholstering furniture. <laughs> you know, she wanted to be that normal home life lady so that there would be a contrast when she was on the road and performing. And I think she achieved that. She achieved that to the best of her ability and to try to keep that sense of normalcy, to try to take care of her mother and her family. And she made that promise early on in life when her father tragically died. And she kept that promise and she did an incredible job taking care of them and being kind, so kind not only to her family, but to the community, kind to the city, the nation. There are things that Marian Anderson is responsible for, for doing in the nation and in the city that most people don't even know, like helping to build a lot of our artistic spaces in the city and amplifying them, especially with her funding. And we're talking about places like the Robin Hood Del East, the Man Music Center, um, responsible for a lot of the arts programs, particularly starting her own, the Marian Anderson Scholar Artist Program in 1950. Marian Anderson becoming one, the, the first person to help build a DIN house for the Girl Scouts of America in Pennsylvania. They didn't have a DIN house here. Very dedicated to the YWCA because it was where she went when she needed help and starting her music education experience. So young ladies, she would often open her door here to, through the YWCA, and mentor them and help them. Barry Anderson was known for her voice, for her vocals. Are there specific songs that people match with Marian Anderson? Marian Anderson is always going to be known for Deep River because it was so important to her because it was the first song that she sang for her audition to get voice lessons with Giuseppe Boghetti. It was a song that was written with her in mind, with her mentor, H.T. Burley, the African-American composer who adored Marian Anderson, and first heard her in concert as a late teenager here in Philadelphia on Locust Street at Music Fund Hall. 
It was Marian Anderson singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. It's Marian Anderson delivering on television Christmas Eve, Ave Maria. The first time what would be considered a platinum album, instead of a song sung at weddings and funerals, Marian Anderson made it popular for generations' sake. It's Marian Anderson singing Brahms and Schubert, which she loves so much. In doing some of my reading and listening, it seems that she really had a tough time sometimes with critics and reviews and navigating those, as any artist would. When she was young, it was tough to take, but it was also tough to take because how fair was it? How fair was it when you focused more on what she was wearing before she and her mother had a lot of means than worrying about her voice and how she sounded. And, you know, she herself would admit in her autobiography that everyone, every artist needs to have a healthy dose of criticism in order to grow, develop, and move forward. But she was also keenly aware of the fact that most of the early criticisms that were lobbed against her were more about because she was a black woman singing classical music than it was for the art itself and anything about that. And that's a sad state of affairs, but she overcame that as well. And that's a testament to her and her character and her heart. Jillian Pirtle, thank you so much for joining me on the Visible Voices podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for everything that you do to give voice to our generation, our city, our country, our issues. I'm honored to be here. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks to Jillian Pirtle for making time to sit with me in conversation. What a treat. Audience, please take a look at the show notes, log into the website of the Historical Society to figure out ways that you can sponsor, support, donate to help restore the house, repair the house, and make it a long living legacy. Also Google and watch the historic performance from 1939 where Marian Anderson performs at the Lincoln Memorial. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano Deportu, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media, at Risa E. Lewis, and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.